from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 15th. Today, President Trump's new plan to pay for his wall. A political standoff in Venezuela and taking Marie Kondo tidying tips to the cloud. On Friday morning, President Trump made it official. Standing in the White House Rose Garden, Trump declared a national emergency to fund a border wall. We're going to be signing today and registering national emergency and It's a great thing to do. While that was happening at the White House, Damien Paletto was watching Trump speak for nearly an hour without any teleprompters. I was at my desk anticipating that this would be, you know, the finale of a long multi-month fight over the budget battle. I don't think we expected what was going to happen to happen today. Damien covers economic policy for The Post. Instead of a very formal process of president declaring a national emergency, he had a kind of meandering press conference slash thought cloud about everything from China. In China, we've had a uh, negotiation going on. Mexico. Much of it coming from the southern border. North Korea. Chairman Kim. We have also established a very good relationship. You know, in a sense, he didn't exactly make a definitive case with facts and statistics on why there is a national emergency. There was a sense of, like, he was back on the campaign trail trying to convince people, you know, this is what I believe, this is what has to be done. If no one else agrees, too bad, we're doing it my way. And what we really want to do is simple. It's not like it's complicated. It's very simple. We want to stop drugs from coming into our country. So how much money is Trump saying that he's going to use for the border wall? The president is now saying that they need a total of around $8 billion. So $1.4 billion comes from the new congressional appropriation that, that is, uh, was passed Thursday night. $600 million will come from the Treasury Department, this forfeiture fund that is money that comes from, you know, seized drugs, assets, all sorts of things. It's kind of a big slush fund of money that, get, that comes into the government. Mm. Um, $2.5 billion will be from a Pentagon program that is supposed to be used to counter drug activities. So a lot of people did see kind of a direct line between that program and what the president's trying to do. Now, it doesn't say in the law that that money is supposed to be used to build walls, but it, it is for countering drug activity. And the president, you know, one of his big arguments is that there's a lot of drugs flowing through the border. We've got to get rid of drugs and gangs and people. It's an invasion. We have an invasion of drugs and criminals coming into our country. The last pot of money is potentially the most controversial, and that's the one that he needed the national emergency to unlock. It's for military construction funds, and it's about $3.6 billion. We're expected to see a lot of legal challenges, you know, on that specific pot of money because it really needs congressional approval, you know, outside of a national emergency to move around. Well, that was going to be my next question. Like, is he allowed to use this money from DOD and apply it to something completely different from what it was originally apportioned for? Almost always the answer is no. 
However, in a national emergency situation, the president does have broad powers to move money around on his own. Now, mm -hmm. the argument is like, what's a national emergency? And the bar is actually quite low. The president does have a lot of leeway to say, you know, something's a national emergency, even if people disagree with him. But he did acknowledge in this press conference that there's going to be legal challenges. It's going to get caught up in court. And he doesn't even really know exactly what's going to happen. And we will have a national emergency. And we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. And how will that play out on the Hill, the fact that this money that was designated for a very specific reason is now being used for something else and Congress has no control over that? It could sort of define the final two years of his first term. Government was set up in a way that Congress appropriates the money and the president, you know, with input from the president, he has to sign it into law. But he cannot decide where the money goes necessarily. And so that's why he needed this national emergency designation to do it. We saw a lot of anxiety and hesitancy from Republicans in Congress when the president said he was going to take this step. I think the president has broad powers to declare national emergencies. I think they should be used very judiciously. I'm disappointed that the president has chosen to go this route. This is not what the National Emergencies Act was intended to be used for. They're worried that if there's a Democrat president, they, you know, follow the same playbook over a different issue, climate change or gun control. And secondly, they're really nervous about ceding any of their authority to the White House. The president cannot just say, OK, I'm going to like build a castle with money that's supposed to be used, you know, for something else. And so by him doing that and Congress kind of going along with it, it would set that president for who knows what down the road. Well, because that was a big criticism from Republicans during the Obama administration, that Obama was using various executive privileges and sort of overstepping to pursue his own policies rather than trying to get across the aisle support in Congress. And so so you can see why Republicans could see a very real possibility that this would backfire in, in a future potentially Democratic administration. Absolutely. And the big difference in my mind between what Obama did and what President Trump is doing is President Obama did a number of executive actions. He did not try to move money from one area to another. That's a whole different level. And so that's what I think has a lot of Republicans nervous. If you can just move money around, you know, that Congress has approved this really deliberative process, who knows what the money can be used for down the road? What did President Trump say about what the money will actually be used for? So th their plan is to build more than 230 miles of barrier. He called it a wall. His staff's calling it barrier. Who knows what it's going to end up looking like. But it's going to be around 230 miles along the Mexico border. A lot of it will be in Texas, but they wouldn't say exactly where any of it's going to be. Obviously, in Texas, a lot of the border is controlled by private landowners. And so they'd have to essentially buy that property from the landowners or take it through the use of eminent domain, which is, you know, a really messy legal process. Yeah, that's complicated and controversial. Right, and absolutely. Would probably take a while. And a lot of libertarians are like not on board with that. What's the likelihood that there will actually be a wall or the beginnings of a wall or some meaningful portion of a wall built by the president by the time we get to the election? There's so many different unknowns here. Imagine if you're a company, you're a contractor, you're totally apolitical, okay, and you see this big pot of money, a couple billion dollars for a project to build a wall. But the person says, you might not get the money, everyone's going to be suing us, everyone's going to hate you, it's going to be totally controversial. Like, why would a company want to do that, get involved in that? 
So in this press conference, President Trump said that he didn't need to do this, referring to declaring a national emergency, but that he was doing it because he just wanted to do it faster. I want to do it faster. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. What did he mean by that? And how is that going to play out? I mean, what what was unique about what he did was that he was not reading from a speech. Okay, he was just, it was classic President Trump. He was kind of riffing. But when he says things like what he said about he didn't need to do it, okay, that's going to be in a lawsuit, that exact quote. And Why? Because it, 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 it sort of suggests that this is not an emergency. You know, if you don't need to do something, then what's the big deal? And he's basically saying, like, I'm doing this because I want to pursue what I've been wanting to pursue for the last few years, and I just want to get it done faster. Right, exactly. And so I don't know how exactly it's going to work. There probably will be some clarification from White House officials later. But by him saying that, I think it did put a potential legal landmine in this whole process for the White House because he did not really, it really undermined his case that this is an emergency that needs immediate um, attention. So what happens now? So imagine this is like a uh, track race in the Olympics, and there's six different people lined up, and the, the starting gun just fired, right? Mm-hmm. So there's going to be, in one lane, the president is going to be rushing to get this done. The Pentagon's going to be rushing to, like, move the money around and rushing to get the contractors and the projects. Okay. The next lane is going to be the Democrats rushing to get a way to stop this in Congress. So there's going to be, like, a vote. In the House of Representatives, a vote of disapproval, and then that would go over to the Senate, which would start a whole other process. And another lane is going to be the Democratic attorney generals trying to file their own lawsuits, both along the border, um, but possibly also to question the whole validity of whether this is a national emergency. And then there will be other lanes full of things we haven't even thought of yet. Okay, so there's going to be all these things happening simultaneously. No one knows exactly how it's going to work. It's probably going to be messy and confusing. The president himself suggested he doesn't know how this is going to finally end up. He said hopefully he'll end up victorious. But there's going to be a lot of activity. We've never really been in a situation before where there's been such an immediate legal challenge. And the politics of this are all up in the air, you know, less than two years from the 2020 election. Thank you so much, Damien. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Damien Paletta covers economic policy and the White House for The Post. On Friday afternoon, President Trump signed the comprehensive spending bill, averting another government shutdown. For the last few weeks, there have been massive protests in Venezuela. People are calling for President Nicolas Maduro to step down and for the country to hold an election to choose a new president. These protests have been sparked by Maduro's opposition, Venezuela's new self-declared president, Juan Guaido. They have launched a systematic attempt to bring more and more Venezuelans into the street with three large-scale protests. Anthony Fayola is the Caribbean and South American bureau chief for The Post. He's been reporting from Caracas. I'm actually in a hotel. We're quite close to actually where the protests were taking place when there were once again claims of having a couple of hundred thousand people that have turned out not only here in Caracas, but across the nation in these demonstrations against Maduro. Anthony says that Maduro's government has been quietly fighting back, staging their own rallies, but also doing things out of the public eye. 
The large-scale protests that are being organized by the opposition, they have been met with relative calm by the government. Instead, what they're doing are these quieter operations that are taking place in the middle of the night, in the slums, in targeted efforts to arrest people who they believe are either rabble-rousers or associated with the opposition in the slums that used to be loyal to the government, where, you know, basically you have police going in the middle of the night, dragging people out. There have been 35, you know, people dead. If this was happening in the large-scale protests, you would have images beamed around the world of repression and tear gas and riot police and etc. But when you do it in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness in, in these rapid-fire operations, it's much more difficult for that to filter through. And all of that has been in response to the growing influence of Juan Guaido. Basically, since Guaido declared himself president, he has been recognized by dozens of countries around the world, led by the Trump administration. In addition, they are working on a variety of other fronts, including trying to challenge the military in Maduro by bringing in millions of dollars worth of humanitarian aid into the country. They're also having backdoor talks with the military and with civilian administrators in Maduro's government to try to weaken his grip on power. And they are trying to up the pressure internationally as best they can to try to make sure that U.S. sanctions coupled with the reproachment from, we see other countries in Europe turning against Maduro, those kinds of things, they're trying to leverage that in order to force Maduro out. The thing is, that has taken a little bit more time than a lot of people have thought. And I think right now we're in this waiting game to see whether or not Maduro is able to hold on, despite all the pressures that are coming to bear. So you say that you've been out talking to protesters on the streets in Caracas. What are they saying about what's going on? The people that want Maduro out are, are just fed up. I mean, life here in Venezuela is incredibly difficult for them. There's scarcities of food and medicines. The hospitals are incredibly, you know, in, in very bad conditions. Some of them don't have powers. Now there's fear of gas crises and diesel crises coming around the corner, which could make it more desperate for those hospitals. In addition, the electricity grid here runs on gasoline. So if there's a gasoline shortage, you could have another situation where the, the power outages and the blackouts that we're seeing already in Caracas get worse. So it feels like at least my sense of what's going on there is that right after Waido declared himself president, it seemed like things were moving really fast. And, and as you said, that there was this expectation that maybe even in a few days, Maduro could be gone. But then that hasn't happened. And it seems like things are moving a lot more slowly. Why has the process of, of getting rid of Maduro been more complicated than a lot of people expected? Well, for one, I think there might have been some false expectations in the beginning that Maduro's inner circle would be easier to crack than it has proven to be. But what we're seeing here is that there's a general consensus right now that these protests alone are unlikely to do the trick. And we're in this period where the opposition is reaching out to senior and mid-level military and civilian officials to try to convince them to turn against Maduro. That, along with this international effort led by the Trump administration to isolate Maduro and cut off his sources of funding, are probably even more decisive factors than the sort of big showy shows of protests that we're seeing on the ground. How else are other countries reacting to this and trying to support Guaido and get Maduro out of power? Nothing has compared 
to the way that the Trump administration has acted here. Nicolas Maduro is a dictator with no legitimate claim to power, and Nicolas Maduro must go. The oil sanctions that they've put in are some of the strongest sanctions the U.S. has ever imposed against any country. In addition, the U.S. has imposed a bunch of individual and sectoral sanctions on the government, and the point is to increase what they call his cost of doing business by staying in power. They've frozen Venezuelan accounts. They're in the process of funneling that money to the opposition. So basically, if you're Maduro, this is some pretty painful stuff. There can be no bystanders in the struggle for Venezuela's freedom. The United States today calls on every nation to recognize Juan Guaido as Venezuelan's president and take the side of freedom. So the tactic here is that now that there is a viable opposition leader who says that he's ready to take control of the Venezuelan government, that all these other countries, and especially the U.S., are trying to put more pressure on Maduro and make it even harder for him to keep his job. That's exactly right. And I think it's going to start affecting the country in some very difficult and complex ways that I think that, you know, people might not necessarily see immediately. For instance, you know, this is a country with the world's largest oil reserves, right? But, you know, Venezuela might run out of gas soon in the coming days. And that's because of the U.S. sanctions. I mean, Venezuela used to export crude oil to the U.S., but import refined gasoline back to Venezuela. So the U.S. sanctions, you know, have essentially blocked that relationship. And so the government now is scrambling to find alternate sources of gas. At this point, what is the possibility of U.S. military intervention in Venezuela? You know, John Bolton and others in the administration have said that military intervention is not eminent, right? If you get Maduro out, there's a dozen more like him in the power structure who could just step in. It just doesn't guarantee change. You know, even if you somehow manage to install an interim government headed by Guaido, there's still some pretty large risks that you get armed insurgencies sprouting up in the lawless interior where it's really run by, these days, by the guys with the biggest guns. You potentially fracture the country. It it just may not be as cut and dry as some people have suggested. And while all of this is happening, what is Guaido doing? So Guaido is focused heavily right now on the issue of humanitarian aid. Because in the next days, the humanitarian aid starts to enter for a sector of the population very vulnerable. The opposition sees aid as a major test of military loyalty. They're going to try to bring in large shipments of aid that have been donated from the United States, Europe, and other countries, from Colombia, Curaçao, and Brazil on February 23rd. So their message to the military is, don't stop us. Turn against your masters in the name of humanity and your starving countrymen. But the risk that we're going to see on the 23rd from that is the military responds with force. And, you know, I think the last thing that anybody wants to see here is bloodshed. But the question is, if there is live fire, does that trigger a U.S. military response? I mean, that's one thing that people are talking about now. That was once seen as a idle threat. But, you know, the feeling is that that's less and less so with every passing day. What would it take for Maduro to cease to be president? What would those steps look like? It's not as if, you know, there's a one, two, three step. This is, a, this is a very sort of unpredictable scenario. It's not like he can enact any sort of specific powers. They are counting on the fact that Maduro's inner circle will turn against him. 
if the military and if his inner circle do not turn against him, it is difficult to imagine a scenario in which the opposition wins this standoff because the guys with the guns are going to determine who's in power. Beyond that, there is a sense that if Maduro is able to hold on for the next couple of weeks, he may be able to hold on for months, if not longer. But on the other hand, you've got this wild card of how the humanitarian crisis here could become much worse, you know, as the U.S. sanctions filter through. The question is, who are the Venezuelans going to blame for that? You know, I think quite a few of them will blame Maduro because he's incredibly unpopular now. But he will try to leverage patriotism and try to blame the United States and try to associate Guaido with the U.S. and the specter of foreign intervention. And the question is, how deep will that message penetrate into the Venezuelan people? I think we'll have to see how that goes. But it is certain that the vast majority of the people here are not in favor of Maduro. What we're going to see is how the pain on the ground begins to impact the calculations. That's Anthony Fayola reporting from Caracas. And now, one more thing. You might be familiar with the hit Netflix show Tidying Up, starring the organizational guru Marie Kondo. Kondo has ignited a global movement for cleaning up and throwing away possessions that don't spark joy. Jeffrey Fowler, a tech columnist for The Post, went to Marie Kondo with his idea for a better, high-tech way of tidying. They didn't entirely see eye to eye. Hello. I'm Maria Kondo. So I'm watching Marie Kondo's TV show. I want to appreciate like what I have instead of like needing more things, you know? And I'm thinking, these poor people. She has them sobbing as they're digging through mountains of old family photos and papers, organizing them into albums, and then tossing them into the trash. It's 2019. These memories don't need to go in the trash. They need to go online. I have every photo I've ever taken stored in the cloud, 300,000 of them. So I reached out to Kondo to see what she thought about my cloud tidying technique. In an email, she wrote, Just because the cloud has endless space available doesn't mean you have to fill it! Exclamation point. I think that was Kondo's very polite way of calling me a digital hoarder. Our different perspectives raise an important question. What counts as a mess in an era of abundant digital storage and artificial intelligence software that can do the organizing for us? Kondo went on. Are you holding on to digital items because of an attachment to the past? A fear of the future? Hold each item one by one and choose items that spark joy for you. I actually don't feel the same weight from my digital collection as I do piles of junk. I feel empowered by having so much information at my fingertips. It's like Google for my life. I don't have to fold anything online. So when I'm having a hard time throwing something in the trash, I snap a photo and save it in the cloud. This works with receipts, it works with children's drawings, I've even done it with old clothes. Ultimately, I think Kondo and I agree about a lot. Your phone alone won't get rid of your bell-bottom museum or 27 mismatched reindeer mugs, but an online tweak to Kondo's techniques could make it easier for you to become a minimalist. You just have to become a digital maximalist. Jeffrey Fowler is a tech columnist for The Post.
that's it for today's show. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. If you've got a minute, share your thoughts about Post Reports at postreports.com slash survey. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. We've been making Post Reports for a couple months now, and we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com slash survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes, and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com slash survey. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.